The sermon today is entitled, A Reed Shaken by the Wind. A Reed Shaken by the Wind. Lessons from John the Baptist. And please, if you will, notice the time. I'm not going to be done in 12 minutes. <laughs> so just hang tight. I know that I've lately been keeping my sermons around 20 minutes. Today's a little bit longer, but you will get to the potluck meal soon enough. So before we jump into the narrative that I would like to look at, uh, I want to give a little background information because today's sermon isn't starting off looking at the birth of John the Baptist and his early life. We're going to sort of pick up later on in his ministry. So just a little background, um, John the Baptist, by his birth and by his ministry, fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy. And If you weren't sure about how important John the Baptist was going to be, the first hint is the fact that an angel announces his birth in the same way that an angel announced Jesus's birth. And John the Baptist didn't go through the normal uh, Christian walk like we do uh, in terms of at some point you give your life to Christ and you're baptized and you are um, filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit in the womb. Before he was even born, he was filled with the Spirit. He was set apart as a Nazarite. Um, If you want a little more information about the the Nazarite rite and what that means and what that entails, you can go back and look at the story of Samson um, because he took that same rite even though he did not always stick to it. Um, That was the plan at the beginning of his life. John the Baptist did not live in a luxury, uh, you know, luxurious palace or even a, a nice place. He, he lived in the deserts. He, he thrived in the wilderness. And people eventually throughout his ministry started confusing him as being the Christ. And he had to sort of set people straight and answer those types of questions in the early part of his ministry. But then he's the one who publicly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Now, you know, Mary and Joseph knew about it. The angel had, you know, given them a heads up before Jesus was even born. But John the Baptist was the first one to really publicly proclaim, this guy is the Messiah. This here is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. And then he has the high honor of baptizing Jesus. Now, before we move on, I want to make something clear. Um, John the Baptist did not create baptism. Uh, John the Baptist did not start the Baptist church either. I've I've heard that a few times from people. Um, So John the Baptist did not start the Baptist church, and John the Baptist did not create baptism. If you went to ancient Israel, um, in every synagogue there were mikvahs, is what they were called, or, or baptistry pools. And... By the way, in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as baptism by sprinkling. Sprinkling was sprinkling, and baptism was baptism. The, the Greek word, the uh, baptizo, it, it, it gives the picture of complete submersion. But if you go to Israel, even today, you will find in front of the synagogues, mikvahs. If you went to ancient Israel, you would also find these mikvahs. 
Now, the actual man-made pools as we see them today didn't start showing up until the first century BC. So still before John the Baptist, still before Christ. Um, But before that, mikvahs were still used, uh, but it was large bodies of water that they could find where these baptisms would take place. So John did not invent baptism. It was a regular part of the Jewish culture. It was a way of representing cleansing. It was a way of representing repentance. And it was a way of representing transformation. So here was John the Baptist calling people to repent and be baptized. The Greek word translated as repent literally means to turn around, to do a 180. So if you're walking this way in the flesh, walking this way in sin, and you give your life to God, and his spirit comes into you, you do a complete 180. And now you're still walking, but you're walking in the other direction. You're walking in God's path as opposed to your own. That's what repentance means. So he was calling people, John the Baptist was calling people to a transformed life. And the way to show that you were following the path that God had called you to was to be baptized. So that's what John the Baptist was about. That's what he was doing out there by the Jordan River. Now, in Matthew 3 and verse 4, we find this curious text. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John's lifestyle was quite different than the lives of his contemporaries. And the two ways described here in this verse have to do with his clothing and have to do with his diet. And camel's hair was quite uncomfortable It was hot. It was not regular garb in these days. Um, In fact, it was a callback. His outfit was a callback to the Old Testament. Um, John's outfit is described in a similar way as Elijah's outfit is described in 2 Kings 1.8. So there's, there's a message in his clothing. There's a message in his outfit. And his diet was also not a common diet. And there was a message in the diet as well. Now, I've heard some people argue that John did not eat locusts or grasshoppers, but that he instead ate carob. And carob comes from the locust bean. But just because two words are similar in English does not mean that they are similar in the Greek. Um, That is not the case here. The case is that the Greek word is clearly referring to a species of grasshoppers. So as weird as that is, as gross as that is, he wasn't eating carob, he was eating locusts. Um, But once again... This is an Old Testament callback. If we try to twist it and make it you know, easier to understand or less weird, we lose the impact of the message that he is trying to convey by his dress and by his diet. So in the Old Testament, the enemies of God and, and God's people were often referred to as locusts, right? They came and they devoured God's people. So John the Baptist devours the devourers. John the Baptist eats the eater. And I believe that he ate these locusts as a way to convey the message that his ministry, by pointing people to Christ, was going to overcome God's people's enemies. There's a message even in his lifestyle. 
So as he's eating these locusts, it delivers a message that the enemies of God's people were being triumphed over through the ministry of John the Baptist. But things get even more interesting here because the books of Matthew and Mark, they talk about John the Baptist eating these locusts and eating these honey. Now, Matthew and Mark were written to a Jewish culture. That was the audience that Matthew and Mark were writing to. Jews would have picked up on this, to us, weird imagery about locusts. They, they would have picked that up almost immediately. They would have understood what was going on. But Luke wrote his gospel to a Gentile audience. And Luke left off the weird stuff. Um, he left off the stuff about John the Baptist eating locusts and honey. Because the Gentiles reading it would have thought that that was just plain weird. That was not common practice back then. So what this clearly shows to me is that Luke got the message of John the Baptist. He understood it because his message, the main thrust was the importance of removing barriers, removing barriers. And so when Luke sat down to write his gospel, there was so much he could have picked and choose from, right? From the life of Jesus. I mean, John at the end of his gospel says, hey, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that he said and did. And if I wrote it all down, there wouldn't be enough, you know, books in the world uh, to cover it all. So Luke had to pick and choose what he was going to cover in his gospel. And he decided, I am going to talk about John the Baptist. And I'm gonna go into detail about John the Baptist, but I'm gonna leave out the stuff about him eating bugs, I'm just gonna push that uh, to the side because while it makes sense to the Jews, the Gentiles would not understand that this locust eating represents the enemies of God's people. The symbolism of that was important to the Jews, but it's just kind of strange to us. But what I would like to do now is fast forward a little bit in the story. So we're gonna speed past the, the baptism of Jesus. And if you wanna follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven. We'll be looking at a number of verses in that chapter. So this chapter starts off by Jesus working miracles. He meets this Roman centurion and from a distance, he heals his sick servant. And then he raises a dead child back to life. So that's the context of this chapter here. This is where we'll pick up in the story. So Luke 7, and we'll start there in verse 18. Luke 7, 18, it says, then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Historically speaking here, John is in prison. John the Baptist is in prison at this point. That's why he was not going to see things for himself. So he sent some of his disciples to check up on Jesus' ministry. And they come back and they tell him all these stories, these miracles that Jesus is working. And it's almost as if John can't believe it. 
He's not, he's not ready to accept the things that he's hearing. So this is John the Baptist, the guy who preached about Christ's coming, who made the public proclamation, this is the man. This is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. But now he's doubting. He's doubting that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Just a mere year later, John the Baptist knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And as he heard the things that Jesus was doing, it didn't fit his concept. It didn't fit his understandings concerning the Messiah. And so I believe it's quite possible that John was troubled by Jesus exposing himself to uncleanness by talking to Gentiles and by touching dead bodies for the sake of miracles. Jesus' words and actions do not fit the picture of the coming one that John was proclaiming in chapter three. The problem wasn't with the prophecies. The problem was with John's interpretation of the prophecies. And this is fairly common amongst Judaism, right? They expected the Messiah to come in as this conquering king. And that's not how Jesus came in. But I believe that there are two lessons that we can learn from this. The first one is be honest with God concerning your doubts. And I know that I've said this a lot from from the front. I've talked about this numerous times, but God already knows your doubts. God knows them. So you might as well be honest and put them out there, right? You might as well be honest with God. Talk to God about your doubts. Don't try and hide them. Don't try and hide them. And the second lesson is that you should be prepared for God to work in ways that may shock or confuse you. The biblical narrative is full of stories where God worked in mysterious ways that left his followers dumbfounded or confused. We may think that we fully understand God, but I believe that God is going to continue to surprise us throughout all of eternity. Just when you think you fully understand God, he's gonna do something to surprise you. And to me, that, that's fun. That's a good thing. I mean, if I could fully grasp and fully understand God, he'd cease to be God, right? He'd be just like me. I'd be on his level. So don't get so caught up in your own concepts or ideas concerning God that you miss or, God forbid, reject when he works in your life or the life of others. So how do we, or how how does Jesus then respond to this? These questions from the disciples of John. Once again, John's in prison, but his disciples are speaking for him. I shouldn't have closed my Bible. So back to Luke 7, I believe we left off at verse 20. Verse 21, Luke 7, 21. And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities. This is Jesus here. Afflictions and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Once again, it's important to remember that John the Baptist was very familiar with Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. And Jesus' words and actions here that he has just laid out and he has just given this message over to John's disciples, they fulfill a messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35 verses five and six say this. And just as as I read this, ask yourself, does this sound like Jesus' ministry? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus was accomplishing tasks on two fronts. First, he was fulfilling prophecy. And second, he was helping people that were in need. So moving on in this narrative in Luke 7, verses 24 through 28, John and Jesus had very different styles of ministry, but both are valid and both were rejected by the religious leaders in the day. So in verse 24, we see, when the messengers of John had departed, he being Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now reeds are fragile. So a reed that is being shaken by the wind would be notoriously weak and undependable, right? That's what Jesus is asking. Did you come see, you know, come out to find some weakling, you know, timidly preaching? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? He's asked it three times. A prophet? And I love Jesus always does this. He asks a question and then he usually answers it himself. What'd you go out to see, a prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet. Prophets were rarely well-to-do. Um, and they were typically forced to operate outside of societal boundaries, and that included the royal courts. So, you know, don't go looking for the prophets of God in kingly places. And at this very time, John is imprisoned. He's not even out in the wilderness anymore. He's in prison. Herod Antipas has thrown him into prison. And he wasn't some sort of court prophet who could just simply tell powerful people whatever they wanted to hear. Uh, John the Baptist spoke for God. And because he spoke for God, most of the time, the things that he had to say were the exact opposite what the kings and the rulers and the leaders wanted to hear. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So John the Baptist is more than a prophet. He's more than just a herald of God because his life and ministry fulfilled the prophecy in Malachi 3. He's the direct announcer of the Messiah, the forerunner, if you will. This Messiah, Jesus, will act in a new way, a new way, by leading his people in a new exodus, 
Now, it's interesting that this new exodus, a return from captivity, is a major theme running throughout the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, once again, is chock full of messianic prophecies. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And then he makes this interesting statement. He says something great, lifts up John, and then, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, in rhetoric and elsewhere, comparisons could demean the lesser figure, but oftentimes that's not what's going on in talk like this. Sometimes speakers chose the lesser figure for comparison precisely because they were great, which would amplify the greater figure all the more. So the comparison that Jesus draws here elevates Jesus's disciples rather than demeans John. And you can compare the saying that Johanan ben Zakkai, he was one of the most respected first century Jewish scholars. They said that he was the, the least of Hillel's 80 disciples. Now this saying was not meant to downplay Johanan's status but instead to increase the status of his contemporaries and also his teacher, Hillel. But there's a greater takeaway here in this verse, what Jesus is saying. John showed doubt and worry concerning Jesus's identity as the Messiah. Yet Jesus did not ridicule or chastise him. Did you notice that? The disciples of John came and just flat out, you know, hey, John's not even sure you're the guy. John is not sure anymore that you are the Messiah that was prophesied and that he proclaimed about. But instead, Jesus, he he didn't chastise, he didn't ridicule, he spoke well of him and elevated John in people's minds. What we can learn from this is that Jesus loves you and accepts you as you are, doubts and all. Jesus is patient Jesus is long-suffering. Jesus is understanding. If Jesus was the angry and vengeful God that many today want to make him out to be, this would have been a prime opportunity to call out John, right? A prime opportunity to put him to shame in front of his disciples and everybody else. But that isn't what Jesus did. Jesus' love for John went beyond right beliefs and a perfect character. And Jesus' love for us goes beyond that too. Jesus knows that accepting us and loving us where we are now is his best opportunity to win our trust and then to lead us into a better life, a transformed life. Continuing on in this narrative, verses 29 and 30. These next two verses are quite interesting to me because it's amazing to see two completely different reactions from two sets of people. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So the people standing around listening to Jesus accept what Jesus is saying here. Even the tax collectors Those people in, you know, the eyes of society that were the lowest of the low amongst the Jews, they accepted it. But sadly, that's not where this story ends because there's another group there in the crowd. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. 
So here we have the haves and the have-nots. Those who have been baptized and those who have not been baptized. Now, in times past, this once-for-all sort of baptism that John was preaching was essentially reserved for pagans that were converting to Judaism. So the religious leaders, the religious folk, and these learned lawyers, proud people, they're unwilling to accept it for themselves. They're unwilling to go through baptism. That's what pagans do. We're better than that. We don't need it. We're good. Pride is a powerful thing. Self-righteousness is a destructive disease. And their unwillingness to humble themselves left them rejecting John the Baptist, his baptism, and the one he prepared for, Jesus the Christ. Luke 7, 31 through 32, Jesus here speaks again. And once again, he asks a question and he gives an answer. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not weep. Now the marketplace was the most public part of town. And oftentimes that's where you found the kids playing was in the marketplace. And spoiled and crazy little kids running around having make-believe weddings and make-believe funerals, and later even a game called Bury the Grasshopper. Look that up if you're interested. But these kids, having make-believe weddings and funerals, represent Jesus' and John's dissatisfied opponents. They were like unhappy kids who were angry at the other children because they wouldn't join along and play the game. What Jesus, in a sense, is saying nicely is, these people are acting childish and self-focused. Now, you expect children to act like children, right? But this is not acceptable behavior coming from adults, especially religious leaders and learned lawyers. But that's exactly what's going on here. And then these next three verses, Jesus wraps up this discussion. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wow. So John the Baptist, he fits the role of a more ascetic or self-denying prophet like Elijah. Jesus follows more of a Davidic model But both are proper in their place. It's not that, well, Jesus was right in his ministry and John was wrong. No, there's a time and a place and and they were each fulfilling their ministry and the way that God had called them to do that. Now, they said that John was possessed with a demon. Demon possession was associated with madness. But sometimes it was also connected with sorcery, which was a capital charge. And gluttony and drunkenness was also a capital charge. So, This is a serious accusation that they're throwing at Jesus. So what can we learn from this? Sometimes when you're working for God, others will attack you no matter what. 
It's sort of, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And to put it in more contemporary language, haters gonna hate, right? No matter what you do, no matter who you try to please, you're going to be met with hatred and judgment and attacks. Because the thing is, we need to be more focused on pleasing God, right? And following his will as opposed to trying to be a people pleaser. Because if your end goal is to please everybody, you're never gonna reach that goal. You're never gonna be happy. You're never gonna be satisfied because I've never met one person or heard of one person who was able to do it. And the other fact here is that if somebody has not fully given their life over to Jesus, they will always find something to complain about, someone to judge, and a reason to be upset. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, that is our natural nature, right? Without Christ in our life, we just wanna judge everyone. We're angry about something at all times. And we've always gotta complain. Nothing will please us. John dealt with it. Jesus dealt with it. His disciples dealt with it. And so will we as we follow in the footsteps of them and in the name of Jesus. So the final verse here in this conversation Jesus is having, he says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, Jewish tradition often personified wisdom, usually a holy woman exhorting the righteous to follow her. And here in this verse, she's the mother of righteousness. And Jesus is playing the part of the mother of righteousness concerned for her children. Just like we, if, if you look a few chapters ahead, if you go to Luke 13, we find him playing the part of the mother hen, right? This is the words of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. All of this says to me that Jesus cares about people. Jesus cared about John the Baptist. Jesus even cared about the Pharisees. And Jesus cares about you. You may find yourself doubting at times, just like John the Baptist. Jesus cares about you. You may find yourself shocked or confused by the way that God is working in your lives or in the lives of somebody else. Jesus still cares about you. You may find yourself being attacked by others for following God. Jesus still cares about you. He hasn't deserted you. He hasn't forgotten about you. The Christian life can be hard. Jesus showed us that. His disciples showed us that. And we also see it in the life, ministry, imprisonment, and eventual murder of John the Baptist. But Jesus is there in the good times and in the bad. When the bad times hit, when doubts creep in, when confusion plagues your mind, remember that Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you. And how do we know that? Because he died for us. He died for you. And that's not it. It didn't just end right there, right? Because now he's preparing a place for you, a home for eternity, a place with no doubt, 
struggles, no confusion, no sickness, no death, and no sin. To eradicate sin once and for all. These hard times that we experience now will soon be forgotten when Jesus comes and takes us home. You are one of those baby chicks in Luke 13. You are one of the children of wisdom spoken of in Luke 7. Will you come home to roost? Will you accept Christ's love? Amen. Nobody can make that decision for you. Nobody can force you, twist your arm. That decision is yours and yours alone. But will you make a commitment with me right now? Will you just open your heart to Jesus and give your life to him? Now's the time to tell it. Let's pray. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the example of John. We can find it in the scriptures and we can pull out lessons even for us here in America in the 21st century. Lord, we thank you for those lessons. And above all those lessons, the biggest one is that you love us, you care for us, you're there for us. Lord, we wanna give ourselves to you in the same way that you gave yourself to us. So right now, we commit our lives to you. With all of our doubts, with all of our confusions, with all of our mistakes, we give ourselves to you knowing that your robe of righteousness will cover us. Knowing that your promises in scripture hold true and especially the one that says that you've begun a good work in us and you're not going to quit until you've finished it. Lord, continue to work on us and may we continue to allow you to do it. We ask all this in Jesus' name.